0: Uh, go ahead and grab a seat, church. It's kind of a nice change. Some of you guys agree. Um, good, just in case you're wondering, this <laughs> Ms. Captain Obvious in the room saying, You got a mic on, but there's no amplification. Why are you wearing a mic? It's just for <laughs> recording purposes uh, so that we can still, Lord willing, get uh, the gift of the common grace of technology, uh, get it online so the people that weren't here uh, to enjoy this can listen. Uh, and anyone else who tunes in. So um, if you have a Bible, go to uh, the Gospel According to Luke. Um, If you, I guess it's a great morning if you have your fake Bible, uh, because you guys get to illuminate it on the sides. Uh, But if you have a a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to Luke chapter 10. I just wanted to um, let us just kind of maybe sit in this just for a minute um, to just consider a few things. Um, The first is, um, this is so good for us. Is it not? I mean... The luxuries that we have, we gather week in and week out. We don't have a clue uh, what, what we get. Um, and I was thinking this morning actually is, uh, I got the, the call this morning. We just found out kind of last minute. We showed up and they're like, no power, running on a generator. Uh, the storm last night must have struck something. Um, I was thinking about so many brothers and sisters that gather in unreached parts that have like one copy of a paper Bible of like the New Testament. They gather in and they treasure the word so much that they they don't care if there's lights on or candles or screens or speakers. They just want to hear the word. Um, And so praise God that we get to maybe just to a a 16th of a degree know what that's like. Right. Um, I was also thinking about everything that happened in Pakistan last week. Um, The fact that you walked in this morning and didn't die Mm -hmm. is an act of grace. Right? I mean, the fact that we're all going to leave this hotel room alive without great threat is a gift of grace. Right. Um, I thought about many brothers and sisters in underground churches where they can't gather in, in freedom. So they, they get in dimly lit rooms and they uh, have little flashlights and get their Bibles open and they read for hours upon hours upon hours. Uh, we don't have a clue uh, how much uh, God has graced us here uh, in the church in America, we don't. So um, I was really thankful for this being a teaching moment for us uh, as a church to um, kind of really examine why we're here. I mean, wh- why do we come on Sundays? Um, if you're doing visiting, you're like, wow, this is this is different. Uh, it's not normally what it looks like, but I don't know. Maybe We'll just keep it this way. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, we thank God for the graces of technology and what He's given us, but but it is in His goodness. I think this is good for us. So I I wanted to take a minute just to have a minute of reflection before we just dive in because I do think this is just kind of him uh, to give us a little bit of perspective this morning and uh, remind us of um, so many faithful men and women who we will share eternity with um, who love God's word, love gathering do not care what their circumstances are like, are under the shade tree, or in the rainforest, or under torrential downpours with, you know, no walls in their church and bamboo top. They don't care. They don't care. And we've gotten so accustomed to comforts and luxury that we walk in going, well, where's the screen, you know, that shows me the scripture, that shows me the verses I'm supposed to sing, right? Where's my hot coffee? We couldn't plug it in this morning, Right? we're, we're, we're feeling those things. We're feeling those things. Don't act all righteous and like, yeah, this is what I wanted. You know, you're, you're lying, right? I mean, this isn't what you wanted when you came in this morning, right? You were grumpy getting out of bed. You showed up here and made you more grumpy. So I, I want us to just take a minute just to, just to sit in this for a second. Um, Just to enjoy Jesus, talk to him, thank him that we get to gather week in and week out in this room, uh, the, the great comfort of this. So let's, let's thank him for it. Let's, God, you're a really, really kind God. And and Father, forgive us for the the many, many times and many ways that we presume upon your grace, that we presume upon what we have and the way that we live. God, would we treasure your word more so this morning than usual. Would we treasure what you've given us here in, in your kindness through technology and media and creativity more so, Lord, than usual. God, would we treasure that we have freedoms that we don't understand? Would we treasure that more this morning than usual? God, thank you that all you're after is worship that is from the heart, that is humble, that is honest, God, we don't need fake aids in front of us to produce that. God, I pray that you would convict many, that you would save some this morning, that you would lead those who are yours into greater holiness and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 10 is uh, where we are this morning. We have been studying the gospel of Luke. If you guys have been attending with us for a while. It's just a gospel basically that this uh, author Luke writes. He's a doctor, physician. He traveled with Paul. He writes the gospel according to Luke, and he writes the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, actually a a two-volume work that he wrote. And he's writing to this uh, Roman official who's named Theophilus, who he is trying to basically uh, help them understand that the life and teachings of Jesus are laid before him, not just so that he'll learn some facts about Jesus and who he was and what he did, but so he'd be totally transformed by this Jesus who lived, who died, who rose, conquered Satan, sin and death and does offer eternal life with him, eternal Joy with him. And so um, we've been just enjoying walking in this gospel, watching Jesus do his works, do his miracles, teach uh, the very things about himself that he will do. And so uh, Luke chapter 9, we saw he actually turns his face towards Jerusalem and he is now heading to the cross, right? The whole tone of Jesus' ministry now has changed. And you're going to see it even more so this morning as Jesus is going to talk about hell. Now, I know coming out of Easter, you were so excited to come in this morning, hear a sermon on hell and how. Hot hell is and the different degrees of hell uh, if you don't trust and receive Jesus. But that's just what Jesus is going to lay before us. So he is basically warning people of impending judgment, warning that if you just choose to refuse what I'm about to do, then there is impending condemnation, right? We, we learned last week about how to evangelize. He sends out the 72. He puts them in twos to validate their witness. And they go from town to town basically telling people the kingdom of God is near. That means the king is here in his fullness. His name's Jesus. And the only way you can enter that eternal kingdom is through repenting of sins and submitting your life to the eternal king who is Jesus Christ. And at the the end, we ended two weeks ago before Easter, where Jesus basically shows you got to give the whole truth, though. Like if somebody rejects the message of the good news of Jesus, you got to be willing and loving enough not to beat them over the head or condemn them, but warn them of impending condemnation. That rejecting Jesus does result in eternal torment apart from him. Now, we don't like to talk about hell, right? We like Easter Bunny Jesus floating on a cloud hitting out pixie sticks. Like, we love nice, cuddly, cozy Jesus. And, And he is warm, and he is loving, and he is merciful, and he is gracious. But he's also executioner. He's also judge. He's not just justifier. So you gotta, you got to get the whole thing. you got to see the whole story. So uh, where we pick up this morning is, we're going to pick up in verse 12. I know we, we discussed that two weeks ago, but this really flows with the, the theme of what he's saying. So let's look at uh, starting in verse 12, where the 72 are out doing their evangelization blitz. Um, they're basically headed to Jerusalem, but doing it a meandering journey, stopping at places, stopping at towns. And uh, where we pick up in verse 12 is really a review, but it's going to lead us through this morning. So verse 12, this is what Jesus says uh, to them. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom... Than for that town. He's talking about now whatever town these 72 stop at and present the good saving work of Jesus. They, that town that rejects Jesus, okay, there's gonna be greater judgment for them than Sodom. Okay, that, that's the town he's talking about. Then he moves on. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment. For Tyre, Tyre, and Sidon, than for you, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. (laughs) Happy post-Easter! This is Jesus getting at us with the truth of salvation. The the truth of all of salvation, right? So he basically gives you six cities. He gives you three New Testament cities and he gives you three Old Testament cities. The Old Testament cities are Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon. And then he gives you the the three New Testament cities, Chorazin, um, Capernaum and uh, Bethsaida. Okay, so he gives you these, these three different ones. Now, the three Old Testament cities were all cities that heard the truth of God and all rejected the truth of God and received judgment for rejecting the truth of God. Okay, and then we're going to look at these other three cities. So, so first one, Jesus says to them, and, and here's what basically he's, he's laying out for us just to give us a reminder. Um, all these cities, Old Testament cities, that, that all these Jewish people knew about were marked by utter perversion, greed, idolatry, wickedness. He says to the New Testament cities, he says it's actually more dangerous for you to hear the message of Jesus and witness Jesus, and witness his works, and reject Jesus, judgment's greater for you. The more you hear the good news of Jesus and reject it, the more serious your punishment is. That's a weighty word. That's serious. So, so that's what he's going to ask. So the first one he says is, hey, do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? List, list that first one, right? Um Sodom and Gomorrah, for those of you that don't know, don't have a church background, Genesis 19, this is... This is classic Old Testament judgment on a city. Um, this guy named Lot is called to go into this town and, and warn them of impending judgment because the perversion had gotten so great and so gross and so deep predominantly in homosexuality. And so he he goes in there to basically warn them and there are these he sends angels to go warn them of the judgment and they're, they're so perverse that they see the angels, think the angels are beautiful and try to rape the angels. So Lot, bad idea, tries to give him his daughters instead. That's just not a good idea. So they lock the doors and these guys, God strikes them blind in their perversion trying to rape these angels and then locks the door with the angels inside and they wear themselves out trying to break down the door to go after the angels. Like we're talking the depths of perversion. We can't even conceive of it. And what happens? He, fire and brimstone from heaven, judges them with some of the most serious intense fire in any of the Old Testament pages of our Bible. So that's Sodom. That's the wickedness of Sodom. Then you have the other two. And Jesus says, Remember Tyre and Sidon? Wicked places. Um, Tyre was this place. It was a little north of Capernaum, just like Sidon. And Tyre was actually a place that was a center for trade. Lots of people came through, but it became a, just an idle factory. People worshiping other gods, a place of greed, a place of extortion. Um, you actually have in the scriptures, I think Ezekiel talks about how, how the king of Tyre is basically one with Satan himself. That he loves doing the works of Satan. So these are three wicked, wicked Old Testament towns. And here's what is amazing. He looks at Chorazin, Beseda, these two little remote towns, and he says, You were exposed to all of my miracles. You were exposed to all of my works. You had the very presence of the living God in your midst, and you still rejected me. And he says, Because of that, your accountability increases, and your culpability increases. And so therefore there's going to be greater judgment on you than those Old Testament towns that you think are so wicked and so perverse. They didn't even have the fullness of revelation that you had right in front of you. Deep. And I love how he puts in there, if they had all the revelation you had, they would have repented long ago. They didn't even have all the full revelation that that you have. So so understand, if you're a first century Jew and you basically say to them, hey, can you tell me the three most wicked, vile Old Testament cities? You know what they're going to tell you? Uh, First pick, Sodom, right? I mean, just total perversion. You know, second round draft pick, probably tied for two, Tyre and Sidon. They were like basically one with Satan. And, And then you hear Jesus say to you, yeah, you know your judgment's going to be worse than theirs if you don't turn to me? Wow. I mean, you've got to, like, get in their head. Like, the, the people that are receiving this, the weight of what's being laid before them is serious. And you hear Jesus say that. So Jesus is basically saying, when you stand on the day of judgment, you're going to have a hotter hell than them. Because of the degree of rejection. See, the degree of judgment isn't necessarily so related to the degree of your sin. It's actually more closely related to the degree of your rejection of the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it. Jesus is just laying laying this out here. And so this is incomprehensible to Jews. Incomprehensible. They can't even believe this. They're going, wait, wait, we're the covenant people of God. Like, we we follow all the laws. We we worship the true and living God. Yet they're rejecting the true and living God in Jesus who came, who's going to live the perfect life and and die the death you can't die and rise again, giving you his righteousness, taking your sin. They think that all the stuff they do is what's going to save them from judgment. So what are you seeing here? Why are their hearts so hard? Self-righteousness. You know that um, self-righteousness is is one of the most damning things and most dangerous things in the heart? Because how hard is it to give someone good news who doesn't think they need good news, right? I mean, the hardest people to reach are those who don't think they need it. I don't need Jesus. Jesus. Look at my life. Look at what I've done. I've, I'm kind of good on the bar, right? So your morality is based on people around you, not on a holy, infinitely righteous God. And so, yeah, you feel pretty good. And that's so dangerous. And, and what happens is you start really becoming God and telling everybody to obey you and not God. And You grow so much in your self-righteousness that your compassion decreases and you just beat people with the truth. The truth that you think will save people, which is really the truth that you live by, not the truth of the scriptures. And this is the heart of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. This is the heart of the religious elite who Jesus has been walking with and teaching around. And he's saying these cities are just self-righteous. They don't get it. They don't get who Jesus is. And so the people are saying, I'm very obedient, but I'm passionless and heartless. And Jesus goes after him. And in this third one, this is is huge. He talks to Capernaum. I don't know about you. This was like so surprising to me. He looks at Capernaum and he says, oh, and Capernaum, the center of my ministry. Like I I would come and sit at Peter's house and hang out. You You guys saw me all the time. I was at your dinner table. I was around you. I mean, if there's anyone who saw Jesus, was around Jesus, heard his teaching and works, it was Capernaum, right? And he says, you guys think you're going to heaven. Actually, you're going to hell. Jesus says it. Just read the Bible, right? Re- read the scripture. And I'm going, hold on a second. Imagine how Capernaum receives this, right? Right? Now, the reason I I bring up Capernaum is because Capernaum was the center of Jesus' ministry. There was a place that he came back to a lot and spent so much time with around family and friends. It was Capernaum. And here's my fear is some of you guys, you're Capernaum. And you're going to hell. Like Jesus is at the dinner table since you were little, Right? He's all around you. His ministry has always been before you. You've grown up in the Christian family, done Christian school, done Christian college, married a Christian spouse. You've got like every list of things, yet you don't really love Jesus, know Jesus. You think by association, you're going to be grafted into the kingdom of God. You think because, well, my parents are Christian or my spouse is a Christian or you know people I know around me are Christians. It has nothing to do with that. Like it's, it's your salvation. It's you repenting of sin. It's you loving Jesus, you submitting to Jesus, not anybody else. Like, you don't get grafted in based on your lineage. And that was big for the Jewish people. So he looks at a town who has been surrounded by Jesus, been seeing Jesus' works constantly. And he says, I'm terrified for you because you think that you're obtaining heaven based upon what you do and by association and by lineage. It's solely based upon trusting in, leaning into the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way you're ransomed from sin. Rescued from damnation. And so Jesus gives a hard word to Capernaum. Now, um, because people don't... Some of you guys are just stuck on... I just can't believe that, that God would fill and create a place like hell. Like some of you guys, you're not even thinking about destruction or where am I at with Jesus... You're just thinking about that because you think that if God's character, as you know it or you've been taught, is he's supremely loving, which he is, then then how could he do that? Some of you guys are saying, well, how does the punishment really fit the crime? I mean, if I tell a white lie or I kill somebody, how is the punishment the same in the sense of I get eternal torment and damnation? I mean, if I still skittles at 7-Eleven, then a little bit better? Don't I get off a little bit? Don't I get maybe just a lower heaven? Right? I mean, that's really how we think. That's how we operate. Um, I just want to just talk about one. We actually addressed one, of the, one two weeks ago. But the other um, popular response to this idea of hell is, is how can God create and fill a place like hell? It's not fair. Um, maybe some of us move into this nice new postmodern talk of it doesn't fit his character. It's not who he is. Even though you look at every scripture that talks about him doing that and sending people there who don't know Jesus, um let me let me just for a second, and we won't have time to to discuss this because there's more we want we want to see. Um, but we believe as Christians that that hell exists because sin is so serious and because the belittlement of God's name is so serious okay so that, that's why it exists okay so so he, here's what's going on though when we have these different these different statements and, and responses to hell here here's what I was thinking about is because that is why hell exists, then you and I can't, because we want to try to be safe or secure, create a different punishment that will further belittle the name of God. Do you see how you run in full circle? Because what you're saying is the name and renown and glory of Jesus Christ and God himself really isn't that big of a deal because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And when our response should be, how big, how awesome, how infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely, massively awe-striking must God be if this is the punishment that fits any crime? Wow. Well, I mean, you have to turn it around. I heard a pastor say, I don't remember who it was, he said basically that the, that the horrors of hell are an echo of the infinite worth of God. Like, that's what it's shining off. So you have to start with, we don't have an understanding of God. It's not a a bad understanding of the punishment and the crime. It's we've got to start with who the God who made all things is like. That's where our hearts must start. And so Jesus Jesus is rolling that out. You don't understand that I'm a big deal. You don't understand that sin is serious that sin will kill, that sin will destroy. That I came in grace, I came in mercy to, to rescue you from that and, and rip you away from that enslavement to sin that will only kill, steal, and destroy, that will cause a fog over your eyes and you'll always buy the lie thinking it gives greater life and it'll keep giving you greater death until you turn to Jesus and are freed from that. And you break out from the enslavement to that sin. And, and here's the other crazy thing. Even though hell is right and it is just because of who God is and how he operates, you know it's still not fully sufficient? You know it's still not bad enough? You want to know why it's not bad enough? Because what does the scripture say? God made everything for the praise of his name. Everything that he makes is ultimately to give him glory, right? Right? Hell does not produce a worshiper of God. Like, you can watch anybody. Does anybody like justice when they're guilty? No. Have you ever seen anyone who's sentenced to life in prison go, man, thank you, judge, I praise you because you're so just. <laughs> Love life in prison. No one says it, right? When you're guilty, you only want mercy. You don't want justice, do you? Right. No one wants that. So, so, so here's how this rolls out, though. You've got got this, this, this whole thing where you can't scare someone into heaven. Like that's the difference. You can scare someone to go to church. You can scare someone to give their money. You can scare someone into doing moral acts of godliness. But you can't scare somebody into loving God. You can't scare someone into loving Jesus. You can't make them do that. Because the good news of the scriptures is not, wow, I get out of hell and I get to be with God in eternal glory. That's an aspect of it. It's salvation is I see him, I see his worth, I see his magnitude, and you just glory in him and worship him and can't believe that you have him. But you can't, you can't, guys, that's where I think the doctrine of hell has been abused. So we just try to scare people into heaven. Let me just tell you how bad hell is. Now that's, that's a true aspect, no doubt. But no one is in heaven because they're just afraid of hell. Right? right? right. You're there because you love God. Right. Like, you love Jesus. You love his worth. You love what he saved you from. You worship him. You're a worshiper. So isn't it amazing that, that, that God has not even created a damnation, a punishment that, that would really, truly... Fit the crime. Now there are other ways where no doubt God is given praise for his justice. Not saying that's not true. But I'm saying physically being in hell, you're not worshiping God. And we don't scare people into that. Okay, we're gonna look at the 72 say. I know it's it's been waiting. We're gonna tie all this up at the end. 72 are gonna come back from from sharing all this and preaching all this. Verse 17. 72 returned with joy saying, so they've said all this, they've shared all this, they've done amazing things, mighty works. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven amazing okay this is amazing this this whole line of thought here is amazing so the 72 come back they're going man did you see all the things we did see the things we did see that guy that we healed and that person who trusted in Jesus and they're just thrilled at what they did and that's that's right to have good joy in that they're thrilled at all that they saw all that they were doing and then they look at Jesus like basically did you did you see it Jesus forgetting his omniscient and he's like yeah I saw what you did he says I saw Satan fall like lightning now There are so many thoughts on what he's actually saying here. I think most are are very obscure because the way you actually read it is I was watching him fall. It's present tense. Okay, so I really think he's saying, yes, I saw you rescuing people from his grip like lightning over and over and over again. I saw you rescuing people from the grip of Satan. I kept seeing him fall like lightning. I witnessed it all. I witnessed all those works. And then he says something amazing. He says there should be joy in that. That's right to be overjoyed about. But you know what you should find your primary joy in? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That that your name is written in the book of life. That right now your names are recorded in heaven. if you don't have a church background, the the book of life is a a register that God has for the name of all the people that he has saved and redeemed. He has a list. Scripture says he had that list before he even made the world. Amazing. He's got a register, the Lamb's book of life, that have all the names recorded of those who are ransomed and saved by his grace. And he goes, man, okay, listen, all these mighty acts and stuff you're doing, you don't glory in you. Like, that's so temporary. Man, this is eternal. Like, no matter how bad life gets or things that go south or things that go wrong, what do you find your deepest sense of joy in? Not just the works that you do. You rejoice in what God has done for you in securing you in unmerited grace, giving you a place in glory with him. Like, are you rejoicing over that this morning, that your name is written in the book of life? Amazing. Amazing to think about. This is what Jesus is telling them. You have to see beyond just temporal, day-to-day, mundane ministry and find greater joy in really what's coming. He's not saying don't find joy in the mundane day-to-day being used by God, but find joy in something that's everlasting. Find joy that this wrath that was towards you in your sin, these, th- th- this hell that does exist for these towns that reject Jesus, he rescued you from that. Or you find a joy in that this morning. Is that causing you to rejoice? Is that your cause for greatest joy? Now I was just thinking about this. Could you imagine if God came to you and said, hey Mike, You know your name's written in the book of life. No more doubts ever, right? These 72 have no more doubts. He looked at them and said, Hey, don't rejoice that you do that. You're true disciples. Rejoice that your names are in the book of life. You ever thought about that? Like he just gave them total assurance. I wish I was part of the 72. There's some days where I'm like, Can you just come audibly and tell, just remind me, right? Because we're all, we're all human. There are times we wallow in doubt. We need the assurance of Christ over us. We need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ and his blood shed and his body broken and beaten for us is what secures us alone. Not what we do or don't do, right? We, we need that. He gives total amazing assurance here to these 72. He says, you are dying to yourself, cross-bearing true disciples of me. Remember, he already did that in Luke 9. This is the mark of the disciple. Die yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. He's looking at them saying, that's you. Amazing, amazing. And then look at what he says in the same hour. It all fits. In that same hour, verse 21, he just told them what to rejoice in and what not to rejoice in. And now he's gonna look, he's gonna rejoice. We're gonna see what he's rejoicing in. In that same hour, As he had just told them these things, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. (laughs) You're like, hmm, that's probably a good, hmm, that's depth right there. Jesus' heart is overflowing with joy. Why? Three things that correlate to all that we just saw. One, he's overjoyed watching the sovereign work of God reveal the redemptive work of Jesus not to the elite, not to the high class, not to those with a perfect IQ, but to the lowly, fringe, outcast nobodies. And he's using them in profound ways. These were the fishermen, the janitors, right? The street sweepers, right? These are the guys in Acts 4. They go, man, these guys are uneducated, ordinary men. How are they, how are they doing things? I mean, Jesus loves seeing God take ordinary Joes and profoundly use them for the kingdom. How encouraging is that? Right? I mean, look, this this is what's awesome. And he's going to roll into this and show that this is all to display his glory through ordinary people. That it's not about your IQ. It's not about your intellect. It's not about your, your wisdom. Otherwise, if that was the only people that God revealed his infinite work of his son to, then they would get credit and say, well, I'm already smart anyways. He said, no, he came to lowly, ordinary people and gave them mysteries that can only be discerned by the sovereign work of God. So people would be blown away at his work, seeing nobodies go out, these 72, and perform amazing, miraculous things so that he gets praise. So you're boasting in the cross and not you. Amazing. And you'll see Jesus do this throughout his ministry. Now, the reason this is also... Um, very very I think important is because you've got in that culture even trying to train people up in the religious system to be Sadducees and Pharisees by the age of six if you didn't like perform right you were just sent home to do your father's trade just learn that and Jesus is going I don't operate that way I don't just use the sharpest or the most brilliant because your IQ doesn't buy you salvation your intellect doesn't help you discern what is spiritual The scriptures are clear about that, right? It doesn't matter how smart you are. It's God's mercy. It's God's grace. Amazing. Amazing that this gives Jesus joy. Look at the other thing that gives him joy. And this really goes with it. No one has a place in the kingdom unless the Father gives him one. (laughs) He's rejoicing in the eternal plan of God. Because it has nothing to do with us. So this is why Jesus comes to those who have nothing to boast in and says, here you go. I'm going to blow your mind with grace so that when you're redeemed and converted, you realize I've got nothing to boast in. Even my confession was granted. Even my willingness to see you and love you and obey you was given to me. So I got nothing to boast in except Jesus who did it. God who did it. This has given him such joy. And that's why he says, God has handed over everything to the Son. Amazing. The Father and Son work in perfect harmony. God the Father so trusts His Son, they're so one as God, Son, Holy Spirit, that He hands over the register of the book of life to Jesus. Here's the register, right? He gives them all authority, all ability to reveal the things spiritually discerned. He gives to Jesus. God the Father and the Son work in perfect harmony in pulling and fulfilling all of redemptive history. It gives Jesus great joy to see that, that these people who have impending judgment that he will graciously reveal to them the truth of God's word, the truth of who he is, and rescue them from the judgment that lays over them. He finds great joy in that. And then look at verse 23. This is how it connects. This is where we'll land the plane. He then turns to the disciples and he says privately. Right? He's talking to the Father. And then he turns and looks at the disciples who... This is only for them. He's talking to them. He goes, hey, okay, this only, this only attributes to you guys. Let me say this privately. looks at the disciples and says, the 72. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I love this. After Jesus is talking to the Father, he turns and looks at his disciples and says something. He says, do you know that everything you understand about me, that all the amazing, saving, wrath-absorbing work of me, of what I will do, did you know that prophets would kill to know the full revelation that you have? Did you, did you know that the kings of old in ancient Israel, with all their power, all their authority, everything they had, do you know they, they would have died to see the things you're seeing? To see the glory revealed in Jesus. Remember, the prophets only had part of it, right? I mean, they, they knew there was a Messiah. They knew he was supposed to come and ransom people from their, their sin, but they couldn't really see the whole story. They only knew what the God was speaking to. They hadn't seen Jesus in the sense of walking in the incarnation, They hadn't witnessed his glory in that way, witnessed his works, witnessed the very essence, character, nature of God in the person of his son walking on the earth. They hadn't seen any of that. And he's saying, man, prophets never even got to see what you're seeing and got to know what you know and got to be revealed to them what is revealed to you. How privileged are you from Moses to Malachi How privileged are you that they, you know, you know Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, the heroes of the faith, you know, next time you read that, even though they're now understanding it in fullness, because they're dead in glory, you know, when they were on this earth, that God's revealed to you what those heroes of the faith would have died to see and died to know, that we have the whole story, that we have all revelation. we have the whole counsel of God? We don't have part of the Bible. We have it fully finished? That's remarkable. He's saying, do you guys realize the treasure of your salvation? Do you realize that you guys were nobodies with no ability to see, no desire for God? You didn't care about your sin, and in the kindness of God, he showed you how good he was. He showed you how massively weighty and worthy he was, and you... Turned to me and you died to yourself and you submitted your life to me. He's basically saying, do you, do you treasure what you've been given to see? And he gave it to ordinary men. Can, can I just lay something before you? If you're in this room and you understand, and I mean in the, the deepest, most saving profound sense you understand the goodness of jesus christ towards you in his cross in his death in his resurrection if you understand that if you understand the depth of your sin the weight of the belittlement of his name that you've committed towards God, the treason that you've committed in the universe against a a God who demands worship, that the weight of you understanding that you were trying to be your own God, you were trying to worship yourself, you're trying to operate and run things the way they should be run. You did not want to bend your knee. You did not want to see him as good. You were rebelling and running, and he chased you down and grabbed you by the the coat collar and ripped you back and placed you in a new family, adopted you at his own, gifted you as righteousness, took all of your sin, absorbed the Full weight and wrath of God. If you understand that, it's been granted to you. You didn't earn it. It's been granted to you that you understand that. That you can sit and even want him. Do you treasure that? That you're even here and you want him that you're even here and you're desiring to hear the things of God, that you, you want to hear what God's Word has to say, that you want to not walk in sin, that you want to walk in newness of life, that you realize that God's after your joy. He's not a joy killer trying to steal joy. He's after actually greater life and walking in fullness of life. If you understand that, it's been granted to you. The Son chose to reveal it to you, he says. Does that give you joy? Do you treasure that? That's what gives Jesus. That's That's what's amazing. Jesus is finding joy in your knowing. It gives him great joy that you can see him for all that he is. It actually causes him great joy. And I love it. Jesus doesn't function like ancient pagan religions. You got the Babylonians. You know, most ancient pagan religions, they would just basically only give you the secrets, the the mysteries of, of what was known in their belief systems only to the elite. You know, we have the fullest mystery of all that God's wanted to say in divine revelation right here. You have the whole story. You have something in your hands the prophets would have died to have. Jeremiah himself. If he could have laid his hands on the whole quarter of time. And we have it. That God in His grace birthed you just in this place and time to have the fullness of revelation, the full counsel of God, that you know the mysteries of the universe right here. That's incredible. Jesus is it's giving Jesus great joy. And he wants us to rejoice in that. That we're living above the mundane and we're swimming in waters that are so deep and so profound that they're endless. So your life is no longer just nine to five. <laughs> your life is swimming in the glories that are revealed to you in Jesus that are limitless. And all that he will do. Let me um, land the plane here. I, I, you know, I know for some of you, um, you're just really stuck right now on the sovereign work of God giving you salvation. Um, Because you're going, well, he just told a bunch of people, a bunch of towns, that their hell's going to be hotter if they don't repent. And now I'm seeing that it gives great joy to the Father and Son that they alone reveal to people who the Father is and save people. So how does that work? You know what's beautiful about the Scriptures? They harmonize beautifully in the Scriptures. They always do. If you read this exact same account in Matthew... Jesus says almost verbatim what he just said. And then you know what he says right after it? Hey, everybody who's heavy laden, everyone who understands that they can't merit and earn salvation, who is burdened by the law and realizes that there's nothing they can do to become more righteous, hey, come to me. Come to me. Everybody, everybody who hears this. And I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You want to know why he can say that? Why we can go to the ends of the earth and call all people and all nations to come to Jesus, that, that this morning anybody who's here, that, that we plead and pray that you would come and see Jesus as good and see Jesus as kind, that God would show you his kindness and show you his mercy? We, we do that because this decree is hidden before faith. It's only known after faith. It's not something for us to know. That's not our job. It's a tribe to go, send, and tell. And we see this hidden decree post-faith as people trust in Jesus and love Jesus and, and embrace him as Lord, embrace him as Savior, embrace him as King. This gives Jesus great joy. So with that in view, let me close with this. There are kind of two groups I see in this story that maybe you relate to right? You've got the the self-righteous one, the elite. They don't think they need Jesus. They're not turning to God. They're blind to judgment. They think they've cleaned themselves up. They think they've made themselves nice. They think all the rules that they do, all the laws that they follow is good. So you think you're above the cross of Christ, right? You think you don't need Jesus. You don't need any merit. You don't need any favor on your behalf because you're good, even though the scriptures will say that, that all those really good righteous works are really as filthy rags compared to the righteousness that is God. So your comparison is off. So you still need the very great worshipful cross of Jesus Christ, right? Okay, that's, that's the one camp. The other camp is, is the one who's just in self-pity. You're the ordinary nobody going, my past is so dark that God's constantly retracting his offer. And if you really knew what I had done, then you would realize that there's no way Jesus would want me. The ordinary, the mundane, I can't believe God would go after lowly people. So you got those two places, right? Let me just, uh, real quick, here's what's so important to see, because both are called to repent and turn to Jesus. Both are told to come to the foot of the cross. Here's why it's so important to see that both totally misunderstand the gospel, You got the self-righteous that earns, that merits, that tries to make his way. And you got the self-righteous, the self-pity person who thinks that they're the one human being that's past is too dark. Did you, if you're in the self-pity camp, when Jesus went to the cross and had his flesh ripped off and was beaten and flogged and mocked and went and died, where were your sins? They were all in view. You weren't even born yet. That's why he went. Do you think an all-knowing, infinite God, think about this, is surprised by the darkness? Do you think he's surprised at, at where you've been? Do you think he didn't know that was coming? I mean, all of your sins were in view when he went and died on the cross. That's one of the most beautiful comforts to me yes. as a Christian, for any of us. I mean, all your sins were not present sins. They were all going to happen sins. And with that in view, you know that's why he went to the cross. So he didn't go waiting to see how Sarah Jane, Sally, Mike would kind of turn out. Like he went with in full view knowing how you'd be, what you would do, the past you would carry. Going, "Hey, I was flogged, whipped, beaten, hung, died rose for you in those sins that weren't even present yet. That's why I went. That's what drove me there." So so here's what you're saying. You're just as arrogant as a self-righteous person. Because you think your past is too dark, that there's no way the cross of Christ could possibly rescue you from your sinful past, your dark past that haunts you. And so you're placing yourself above the cross, too. And we should be celebrating you, not Jesus. So both the gospel that's why, guys, it is things go horrifically crazy when we don't land in that salvation is by grace through faith alone with no merit of ourselves at all, with nothing that we have not done or have done, so we boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the gospel beautiful. And can I just encourage you, because I know know there are many in this room who are deeply banged up, deeply hurt, who have counseled with, walked with, who you think that you are too far gone. Do you know you're in good company? Do you know the the Old Testament heroes of the faith if you know their stories? Rahab being a prostitute that God uses. Ruth, who's got a line of incest, is the great, 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 great granddaughter of just incest. She's got a dysfunctional family. Moses is a stutterer with a speech impediment. Can't even talk right for God. Murdered somebody. David, murderer, he's also like borderline schizophrenic if you read the Psalms, right? I love you, I hate you, I love, I mean... Just find your, find your guy. Seriously, find your guy in the Old Testament. Find your guy. You know what you're going to see? God wowed them by grace in the cross of Jesus. So I take nobodies. I take people that are dysfunctional. I take people that are screwed up. As long as they see their desperate need for me, and I'm the only thing that makes them right. Amen. Come to me, all who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. And maybe some of you in this room, you walk around with some arrogance. Because you've got a lot of good self-discipline. And because of how, you're, how good you are in your marriage and how well you parent and, and how you're killing sin. Can I just graciously remind you that, that every bit of that is grace towards you? And that if you walk in arrogance in that, you're really becoming a blasphemer? So let's, may God help us. Let's, let's ask God for help. Lord, we thank you that you... Are a God that that takes those who think they're good enough and humbles them and you take those who think they are not good enough and wow them with your grace. God thank you that it is your sovereign grace that illuminates both the self righteous and the one in self pity. God, would you give us joy in that we are yours in Christ? There might be some this morning that just need to be reminded that they are secure, that they have been found, that they have been bought by Jesus. There may be others that need to be lovingly warned that there is nothing in them that can accomplish redemption. There's nothing in them that can give them a place in heaven. It is by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, crucified, taking sin, gifting righteousness, Defeating Satan, sin and death. Rising, stamping that he's victorious over it. God, would you reveal yourself this morning? God, would you save some this morning? If you're in this room, you don't know what to do. And you you want to repent of your sin. Say, Jesus, I want to see you as good. I want to see you as saving. Show me the work of your son on the cross. Show me my sin and show me you taking my sin and paying the debt in full and being my substitute for me on my behalf. Ask God and his grace to reveal that to you. Father, help us to take seriously our sin because we love you not because we're trying to achieve or merit or earn. Father, be with those in this room who have nagging past, dark things that haunt them. Would you pull them away from the enslavement of even self, self-pity and put them on the rock with Jesus who shows them clothed in righteousness, who goes after Wicked, sinful, dark, dysfunctional people that rewires us to operate and worship the ways that we were intended to live and worship. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that it pleases you to reveal your Son to us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a heart that even desires you. And will we find joy in that today? In Jesus' name, amen.